standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. All right. I'd like once again to invite the Lord's presence in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, once again, Father, we bow before thee with humble heart and grateful heart for the pleasure and privilege and opportunity we have to to worship thee, to come into thy presence, into thy courts, as it were, Father, to seek thy face. And we pray that as we read thy word, Father, we come to thee as thy children to seek instruction and wisdom and understanding, correction if necessary. But Father, we want to be like thee. We want thee to teach us how we are to walk, how we are to think and to act, and we need thy grace and strength to provide for our weakness and our inefficiency. So, Father, help us now as we gather together. Bless thy word and bless our ears that that they may hear. And bless my lips, Father, that I may speak thy word, not mine own. For this I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I wanted to, to take what we learned about character formation or character building, and I kind of want to apply it practically from some of the examples we have in the Bible. And this section I've kind of somewhat titled The Two Ways or The Two Classes. And we're going to look at those two ways, and I want to look first at the way that the Bible calls the way of Cain. So we're going to look at the way of Cain. When we see in Scripture... Scripture paints two clear paths, two clear ways, paths that we can walk. And the first is the way of Cain. And Cain and Abel are perfect examples of these two ways. We're going to look at them here. So first off, I want us to look. This is a statement, the first statement here. In the Signs of the Times, September 11th, 1884. Notice what she says. She says, Cain and Abel represent two classes of men that have existed from generation to generation and will continue to exist to the close of time. So here we have two classes of men that exist. In this world, there are only two classes, right? It makes sense. If there are two masters, there must be what? Two classes, right? Those that serve the one master and those that serve the other. So clearly we see these two classes of men. And there are two ways in which these two classes walk. So I want us to look at these. Jude, I have here the chapter on there, but there's only one chapter in Jude. It should be just Jude 11 and verse 19. So verse 11 and verse 19. Verse 11 tells us of the way of Cain. So Cain had a way, a path that he walked. And what is that path? Verse 19 says, speaking of those that separate themselves, they're sensual, having not the spirit. So this first class of men, those who follow the way of Cain, the first to follow in this path of mankind, first of the sons of Adam, I should say, that followed in this course, this way, his name was Cain. And it says, they, those that follow him, separate themselves. So nobody separates them. They separate who? Themselves. They choose to separate themselves. Why? Because they're sensual and they have not the spirit. 
So two qualities we see. They're guided, they're directed by their lusts, their senses. They're sensual. That word sensual in the original is the word for soul. It's the Greek word psukikos, soulish. They're, they're led by their senses, by their feelings. The word soul encompasses the five senses, whereby we know and understand the world around us. Those that are led of those senses are called sensual. They know nothing beyond what they can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. Nothing beyond those five senses. And so these are called those that follow in the way of Cain. And notice what Genesis tells us about Cain, pointing out this distinction. It says, Cain did what? He went out from the presence of the Lord. After the Lord had come to him and pled with him, admonished him to come back, to choose righteousness once again. Cain had sinned, but God came to him, gave him an opportunity to confess and repent. But instead, Cain chose to point the finger at God and say he was to blame. And the result was that Cain was punished. And Cain resented his punishment. And as a result of that, it says he went out from the presence of the Lord. He left God's presence. And it, it was something that became the hallmark of his life. He lived the rest of his life wanting to put God out of his mind, wanting to be as far from God as he possibly could. This is called the way of Cain. It's the way of those that separate themselves. Notice that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. The Lord did not depart from him. The Lord came to him. But Cain chose to depart from the Lord. And so it was his personal choice to leave the Lord. It was not the Lord that left him. That came as a result of his choice to leave the Lord. Secondly, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, tells us going back to this time. Speaking of this way of Cain, Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now Paul is hearkening back to Adam, that one man by which sin entered the world. And what entered because of sin? Death, right? It says, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So sin resulted in death. Death came as the result of sin. And so death passed upon all men. Why is this? Why does the Bible say that death passed upon all men? For all have sinned. That's right. Notice what the Review and Herald says in connection with this. This is April 5th, 1898, paragraph 9. She says, When they, speaking of Adam and Eve, accepted the assertions of Satan, which were false, disobedience and transgression were introduced into our world. So what brought this introduction? When Adam and Eve did what? Accepted the assertions of Satan. That's right. So when they believed the lie, transgression and disobedience were brought in as the result. They disobeyed, right? Because of their belief of the lie, they disobeyed God. 
And so disobedience and transgression were brought into the world as the result of Adam's sin. Notice what she goes on to say. This obedience, excuse me, this disobedience to God's express command, this belief of Satan's lie, opened the floodgates of woe upon the world. Satan has continued the work begun in the Garden of Eden. So the work that he began with Adam and Eve, he has continued till today. The very same tactics that he used against Adam and Eve are the tactics he uses today. Adam's transgression brought sin into this world. And so, as every one of us believes the lie, we bring sin into our life and death into our life. And so death passes upon us as the result. Now, this is not talking about physical death. This is talking about the death that is the punishment for transgression. There are two deaths mentioned in the Bible. There's a physical death, which comes to all men, whether they're righteous or unrighteous. All have died this death. Okay? There are a few of exceptions, or a couple of exceptions. You have Enoch and Elijah. They're really the only two exceptions to this. But all men have fallen under this death, whether they be righteous or whether they be unrighteous. This is the physical death that all men suffer as a consequence of that which came into this world. But there's a second death that is a punishment, not a consequence. It's a punishment for transgression of the law, just as we have punishment for crimes in this world. God's punishment for sin is the second death, we call it, the lake of fire or complete destruction of the wicked. This is the death that is talked about here. So, the same work that Satan began in the Garden of Eden, he continues to our day. Now, speaking of this way of Cain, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, gives us insight into this. Notice that Paul is talking about what kind of man? The natural man. Now, the natural man is the physical man. The sensual man, same word. This natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Why is it that he does not receive the things of God? Why is it that this, the, people, the majority of the people of this world do not receive the things of the Spirit of God? Paul tells us, for they are what? Foolishness unto them. They can hear them. They can see them written, but to them, they're foolishness. They, they can't perceive them with the physical eye. Their mind is incapable of understanding and perceiving them because they have not the Spirit of God. For, Paul tells us, neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, not only does it take the Spirit of God to inspire what we call the inspired writings, the prophets were inspired. It required the Spirit of God moving upon them for them to speak and write those things. We understand that, right? For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But not only is it given, it's understood by inspiration of God. If we don't 
have the Spirit of God, the things written by the Spirit of God will not be comprehended to us. They will be foolishness to us. They can only be discerned, that is, understood by the Spirit of God, which works upon the conscience, the mind, the intellectual part of man. So these things can only be spiritually discerned. So it takes inspiration to understand the Word of God. Keep that in mind. James 3.15, again speaking of this class, speaking of the wisdom that descends not from above, but it is what? Earthly. Earthly. Did you know there's an earthly wisdom? There sure is. There's an earthly philosophy. This wisdom, James says, descendeth not, or comes down not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. So if it doesn't come from above, where does it come from? What's the opposite of above? Below. That's right. If it does not come from above, it comes from below. There is a wisdom of this world, and no, it's not the wisdom of men. It's the wisdom of he who rules among men, who is the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the children of disobedience, the ruler of this world. His wisdom, it's not from above. It's, as it were, earthly. It's sensual, and it's devilish. Now, this is a, a statement. I want to read it to you. Talking about Cain and Abel, <clears throat> excuse me, and the distinction between them. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets on the, the chapter regarding Cain and Abel. It says, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam, differed widely in what? Character. character. So going back to what we looked at in our first lesson, they differed in character widely. Not just a little bit, but notice as a word, you could say they were diametric, diametrically opposed to one another. They had a wide difference in character. But they were both sons of whom? Adam, right? So they both inherited the physical, genetic makeup of their father. But you cannot genetically make up a mind, can you? You saw that the mind is what contributes to the character, not the physical attributes. Though they had the same physical attributes, the same physical qualities given to them by their father and mother, they even had the same education, as we will see in a moment. But they had widely different character, hearkening back to the choices that they made. And we will note that as we continue to read. The author says, Abel had a spirit of loyalty to God. He saw justice and mercy in the Creator's dealings with the fallen race and gratefully accepted the hope of redemption. So here we see Abel's character. He chose to believe God. Despite what he could see, despite the circumstances, despite the sorrow and, and death that perhaps surrounded the world at that time, yet he chose to believe that what God had allowed was merciful and good. God had only their best interest at heart in this. And Abel believed that. And he acted out those beliefs by faith in the offerings that he brought, showing that he believed in a Redeemer to come. He believed that his salvation was purchased by the Son of God, that one paid that price for him. And his faith showed his character. 
It was a character of loyalty. But notice the character of Cain, his brother. It says, but Cain cherished feelings of rebellion. Now notice that word. He did what? He cherished. Now, does that mean that Abel did not have those feelings? No, I don't think so. But Abel certainly did not cherish them. We all have those feelings at times. When we're reprimanded by our parents, we may have that momentary emotion or feeling of rebellion that comes over us. But we don't have to cherish it, do we? No. We can't keep that bird from flying over our head, but we can certainly keep it from making a nest, can we? But Cain chose to cherish those feelings of rebellion. And the result was he murmured. He began to speak out against God because of the curse pronounced upon the earth and upon the human race for Adam's sin. He blamed God, not himself. He blamed God and perhaps his father, but it wasn't his fault. You see, he, the author continues, he permitted his mind, notice again the choice of words, he did what? Permitted his mind. Now, a mind can be enticed to go in a direction, but we have to permit it. He allowed his mind to dwell on certain things. He permitted it to go in a direction that it shouldn't have gone. He permitted his mind to run in the same channel that led to Satan's fall. And who do you think planted those thoughts? Satan's mind, right? Only Satan can lead us in the direction of his own mind, right? It doesn't come naturally to man. Satan is the author and instigator of sin. And he chose to follow. He permitted his mind to run in the channel that Satan had opened up for him. He indulged the desire for self-exaltation and questioning the divine justice and authority. So you, you can see very clearly that the reason for the difference of character here were, were be, not because of their birth. They both had the same genetic makeup, the same brain, the same body, but it was clearly going back to the choices that they made, the things that they did in their life that brought about this wide separation between them, the difference of their personality and character. The author continues, So far as birth and religious instruction were concerned, these brothers were what? Equal. They had the same inheritance, physically, genetically, and they received the same education. Their parents instructed them in the ways of God, both together. Both were sinners. Don't think Adam or Abel didn't sin. He too was a sinner, like as we all are. Both of them were sinners, and both acknowledged the claims of God to reverence and worship. Yes, even Cain acknowledged that. You see, it continues, to outward appearance, their religion was the same. Cain had a form of godliness. He claimed to worship God, didn't he? He even brought his offering to God. Up to a certain point, the author continues. So to outward appearance, their religion was the same up to a certain point. What was that point? We'll see in a moment. But beyond this difference between, excuse me, but beyond this, the difference between the two was great. Cain had the same opportunity of learning and accepting these truths as had Abel. 
He was not the victim of an arbitrary purpose. There was no predestination with God. One brother was not elected to be accepted of God and the other to be rejected. So the author is here clearly addressing this idea of predestination. Abel was not predestined to be saved and Cain was not predestined to be lost. Both had the same opportunities, the same privileges, the same equipment, the same education. The only difference, both did not make the same choices. She continues, Abel did what? Abel chose faith and obedience. Cain, and we might put in brackets, chose unbelief and rebellion. So clearly it boils down to choice. And we saw that choice is what forms character. And that's why their characters differed so widely. Here, we're told, the matter, excuse me, here the whole matter rested. So the entire matter, there's nothing outside of this that determined their character. Choice. Here is where the matter rests between the two. They both had the same equipment, same opportunities. Everything was the same, their education. But one thing, Abel chose to believe and came to disbelieve. One more slide here. I wanted to draw us back to John chapter 3, the statement that Jesus made to Nicodemus, because I want us to understand here how this connects with what we understand as being born again. Jesus was talking about something that is fundamental to all mankind in his conversation with Nicodemus. Let's read it here in verses 3 and 6. Verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, that is, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now in verse 6, he continues and says, That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is? Spirit. Were Cain and Abel born of the flesh? Sure, they were. Were both born of the spirit? No. So you see that being born of the Spirit is a choice, right? Clearly. Jesus is talking about a choice here. Birth is a choice in this instance. It's not something that happens involuntarily. Yes, our physical birth is something that we had no choice in the matter. But our rebirth is something that we all have a choice in. We can choose. John 8 Let's take this to Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees of his day, the religious leaders, if you will, of Israel. Now he's speaking to this class, and not just to them, but there were the, the, what you would call the children of Israel who were around them. Jesus was not only speaking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but specifically, if you look at the context, Jesus was speaking to those that believed on him. In the previous verses, it says that many among those who heard him believed on him. And then he begins to address them and says that if they will believe him, they will be free. My word, he says, will set you free. And those that are free will be free indeed. And those that believed on him said, wait a minute, you know, we've, we've been slaves to no man. How do you say that if we believe you, we will be free? 
because we've never served any man. We've never been slaves to any man. We're free. And what does Jesus reply? It says, he who what? Serves sin what, or does sin is the servant of sin. So what kind of slave or servitude was Jesus talking about? Not physical, certainly, but spiritual servitude, spiritual slavery. So he's talking about those who had been who had chosen to sin. Now I want to skip down to verse 23 in this chapter. Jesus says unto this class of men, ye are what? What's that phrase? From beneath. I am from above. What does he mean by from beneath? Ye are of this world. I am not of this world, he said. So what Jesus is talking about is our birth, spiritual birth here. Not only was Jesus physically from above, of course they were not. Jesus is not talking about having physically come down from heaven. That he did. He was from above in that sense, but that's not the sense in which he was talking because no man was from above in that sense. The sense in which he was talking was regarding choice. I am from above. You are from beneath. You are of this world. I am not of this world. What does he mean? Let's read on. Verse 38 says, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. Jesus acted out that which he had seen with his father. He carried out that which was in his heart, right? The word of God, yea, thy laws within my heart. Jesus acted out the law which was in his heart, placed in his mind and heart. He says, ye, speaking to those that claim to believe on him, but did not do the things from above, he said, ye do that which ye have seen with your father. And they began to perceive and pick up on the meaning of his words. And they said, oh, no, we're not born of fornication. We have even one father, Abraham. And what does Jesus say? If you are of Abraham's seed, you would do the works of Abraham. Do you understand what he's saying? Our birth is not so much our genetics, but who we follow, who we imitate. He said, if, if you were truly Abraham's seed, you would do what Abraham did. You would follow his example if you are Abraham's seed, truly. So when Jesus talks about being born again, being of someone, he's talking about who we choose to follow. He says, ye are not of Abraham's seed. Clearly, verse 44, he says what? Ye do the deeds of your father, verse 41. Who was their father? Your, your father is the devil. They did the devil's bidding. So they were born of the devil. That's what Jesus is telling them. You are of. By the word of in the original, it's talking about generation, being of someone, coming of them. Just as Jesus said, I am not of this world. I do not follow the ways of this world, the thinking of this world. I follow the ways and thinking of heaven, the thoughts of my Father I have expressed to you. I am not of this world. I am from above. 
Not because he was not born physically as, as every human being is. He had a physical, fleshly, earthly body. But his mind was the mind of God. Their mind was not. And their mind was the result of their choices. They had chosen to follow the dictates, the ways and customs of this world. And so Jesus calls them the children of this world. And who are the children of this world? They're the children of the devil. So you see, our birth, our physical rebirth, being born again, is not a physical thing. Although it has physical, what you would call consequences or results, but it's a mental thing. It's who we choose to follow. Jesus followed his father. He came to set the example for us. The path that his father set out for him, he chose to do. He put his will in harmony and in subjection to the will of his father. And he did that which was pleasing to God. So he said, I'm not from below. I'm from above. Because of the choices he made, he showed who he was born of. He was a child of God in more than one way. He was the son of God, but he was also a son of God in another sense. Not only was he begotten literally of his father, but he, had, he was of heaven. He chose to follow the ways of heaven as a man. So he became our representative. He became, as it were, Adam for us. He became the son of God in the human race to represent us. And he chose to follow God. And so he is of above. He was, we might say, born again in a sense which is not contrary to sense. Jesus did not need to be born again, but he was born from above. He chose to follow his father. And the Jews of his time, the majority of them did not. So you, have, you see two very clear classes of men pointed out. And when Jesus is talking about being born again, when John is talking about being born again, this is the birth he's talking about. It's the, it's the formation of character. The process and formation of character is the birth process. Because it's not the physical body that's important. It's the formation of the character that is what determines whether we're born again, whether we're born from above or born from beneath. And this takes me to the second class that I want us to look at. We have the way of Cain, but we also have the way of escape, which is the way of Christ. Genesis 3.15 tells us of this way of escape. The Lord, I believe this was Jesus that spoke to Adam and Eve. He said, I will put enmity between thee, talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. So Jesus was going to put something in them that would create enmity between the devil and them. It was a promise that God gave. And Paul, commenting on this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, expresses it in this language. This enmity is expressed as, quote, There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So with every temptation, God has provided a way of escape 
There is a choice. A door is open for man to escape that temptation. God provides that. God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. I will provide a means whereby they will not be your captive unless they choose to be. I will put enmity in their heart against you. And he was speaking to the devil when he said this. The devil knew that in these words, God was not going to permit man to be his slave unless he chose to be. So this enmity was the way of escape. God provided a door whereby man may escape every temptation. And Jesus came to show that that is true. 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Again, commenting on this fact, Peter says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. God is in the business of delivering. He is in the business of saving. God does not lead us into temptation, but are, we are to pray, deliver us from it, right? That's the part of the Lord's prayer, isn't it? But lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is the prayer. And the Lord has provided that deliverance in himself. The Lord is our deliverance. And he has provided that by giving us his spirit. By putting that enmity, which we will see momentarily, is himself, his spirit in us. Notice Isaiah 30, verse 21. Isaiah says, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it, when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left. Notice, there is a voice speaking. Conscience, we might say. And when does conscience speak? When you turn to the right hand or when you turn to the left. This is kind of a poetic way of saying at every juncture in life, whenever there's a choice, a decision to be made, go right or go left, God will say, this is the way, go in it. God will speak to the heart and say, this is the way of escape. This is the right path. Choose it. God will speak to us. He has promised to guide us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And at every choice, at every juncture in life, he has promised that voice that will speak to us and say, this is the way. Walk ye in it. This is the right choice. And it's up to us to determine which path we choose. The way of escape is open to us, freely provided for us. All we have to do is submit our will to it, and God will carry us through, through that escape. Note, the Bible terms this enmity as the fear of the Lord. It's another term used to express, notice it, Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is to what? That's 8.13 actually. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So the fear of the Lord is not just some trembling, but it's a hatred for evil. It's a fear to do that which is wrong. That's that enmity that God puts in the heart of man. He's promised to put there. That voice that will speak to you and say, no, this is the right path. Walk thereon. It's the fear of the Lord. And we are told in Proverbs 1 verse 7 that it is the beginning of knowledge or instruction. It's where education begins. It's the first thing we're to teach our children, the first thing we are to learn in our Christian walk, to hate evil, to learn to love that which is good, that we may choose to follow it. It's where instruction, whether as a babe, 
physically or a babe spiritually begins. Notice Psalm 40, verses 7 through 8. This here is a prophecy of the Messiah who was to come. It says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. This is speaking of the Messiah, the one we know of Christ, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. The law was written in his heart. How was it written there? I would say it was etched there, choice by choice. The law was written there. He learned the fear of the Lord from the time he was a babe in his mother's arms to from all the way to adulthood. He learned to hate evil. And thus the law of God, which is hatred for evil, was written in his heart. And notice what the article in the Science of the Times, May 10th, 1899, writes in regard to this. It says, Amid impurity, Christ maintained his purity. Satan could not stain or corrupt it. His character revealed a perfect hatred for sin. His what? His character. What revealed it? His personality or his character revealed that in him there was a perfect hatred for evil. His choices had stamped that upon him. He had established habits of right doing, and those habits formed the character, a character which revealed a perfect hatred for sin. And that character he promises to reproduce in us. His life is the promise to us. That's what he wants to give to us. Jesus is the way of escape. I want to read to you some thoughts here. This is taken from the great controversy. Speaking of this, when God spoke to the serpent, she quotes, she says, God declares, quote, I will put enmity. This enmity, she says, is not naturally entertained. So it's not something that we're given by birth. It's something that God gives to every human being. It's a given to us. It's not naturally entertained. When man transgressed the divine law, that would be Adam, his nature became evil. And he was in harmony and not at variance with Satan. There exists naturally no enmity between sinful man and the originator of sin. So the moment Adam sinned, there was perfect harmony between him and the devil. But something happened, didn't it? Christ stepped in and said, I will not allow this. I will put enmity between you and the devil. He would not allow us to be the captive of Satan. She continues, Had not God specially interposed through his son, Satan and man would have entered, entered into an alliance against heaven. And in Excuse me, and instead of cherishing enmity against Satan, the whole human family would have been united in opposition to God. That's a frightening thought. But it's only theory. She continues, but when Satan heard the declaration that enmity should exist between himself and the woman, and between his seed and her seed, he knew that his efforts to deprave human nature would be interrupted that by some means man was to be enabled to resist his power. 
You see, Satan was banking on the fact that if he could lead Adam and Eve into sinning, that they would be his. That they would lose their power. He would become their ruler. And he would be their king. He hadn't counted on the fact that God had provided a way out. And so he was shocked to hear that God had provided a means, the very same means he had provided for the angels. He provided for mankind. And Satan had not counted on this. So he was surprised and shocked when he heard this. He knew that now he was going to have to put forth even more effort to destroy the image of God in man and to secure their allegiance. They would not be permitted to be his slaves from that point on, simply by birth. So Adam's sons would not be born as servants of the devil. There was a way out permitted them. The author continues, The grace that Christ implants in the soul creates the enmity against Satan. Who plants it? Christ does. Christ implants in the soul this enmity against Satan. Without this converting grace and renewing power, man would continue the captive of Satan, a servant ever ready to do his bidding. The moment we choose to sin, we once again come under the power of the devil. But Christ has provided a way of escape for every one of the sons of Adam who have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that way of escape is Christ himself. Christ has promised to implant this enmity in the heart. The author continues, But the new principle in the soul creates conflict. Notice what it does. It creates conflict where hitherto had been peace. The power which Christ imparts enables man to resist the tyrant and usurper. So it's this enmity which enables us to resist. Whoever is seen to abhor sin instead of loving it. Whoever resists and conquers those passions that have held sway within displays the operation of a principle wholly from above. How is it that we are known to be the sons of God? How is it? By this revelation of the power of God in our lives. As we reveal that power, that resistance, whoever resists and conquers the passions, we give evidence that there's a higher power at work in our lives. When we have this resistance to these things in our lives, it's showing that God is working in the heart. God has begun that good work in us. It's the evidence of that. There's a principle at work in our life that is seen to be from above. Here's the last statement. Review and Herald, August 16th, 1892, paragraph 2. It says, The law of the divine government is that each one has the power of being the arbiter of his own destiny. Did you know that the law of the government provides for that? That each one of us, we have the power of choosing our own destiny. It's up to us to choose. Every day, really every choice is being put on the balance, either on the side for good or the side for evil, in this proving ground 
this probationary time, this probationary life that we have. The law of God has provided this for us. Christ himself, by his intervention, intervention, has provided it through the gift of his spirit, his mind, which he promises to put within us, is the way of escape. It was the way that led to Abel escaping, that provided, that I should say, produced in him that righteous character, whereby his blood, his life, speaks today, as we read in the book of Hebrews. His life speaks today because of that, and Cain's life speaks today. We have these two ways, the way of Cain and we have the way of escape. The devil wants you to think that you're simply have no choice in the matter, that you're, you, you have no way of escaping destiny, whether it be your, your genetic destiny or your spiritual destiny. But God wants to assure us today that we have a choice in this matter. And that choice lies with us. God has said over and over again, Choose you this day whom ye will serve. And even more so, choose ye this moment. As sin is presented before us, we are to choose moment by moment the Lord. And as we do this, we are writing our own destiny. So I want to close with this thought. This is kind of a, not so much a quote, because there are different ways in which this is expressed. Thomas Jefferson was quoted once as saying, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And it's one of my favorite quotes of Thomas Jefferson because it rings so true when we look at it in a spiritual sense. Now, he was talking in a worldly sense, talking about civil freedom, civil liberty, that unless we are vigilant, we cannot maintain our freedom in a civil world, in a civil government. But it's so true also in spiritual way, in the spiritual realm, that unless we are eternally vigilant of the wiles of the devil and eternally vigilant in watching over our own souls, we cannot have freedom. The devil is about, he is active, constantly seeking to guide us and lead us into destruction. We have a real enemy, beloved, as a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may destroy. And he's alive and well today. And the only way we can be free is if we are vigilant, eternally vigilant, we must remain on guard against our enemy. We must also keep our eyes on heaven. So the price of freedom, and not only civil freedom, but specifically that freedom of which Jesus spoke, that freedom requires our eternal vigilance while here upon earth. And I want to leave us with this statement from the Present Truth, November 3rd, 1885. A beautiful statement. She says, You will have a battle to fight. You will have to overcome difficulties by strong, determined effort. And I love this last sentence. But eternal life is worth a lifelong, persevering effort. Do you believe it's worth it? Because it's our belief that really will determine 
Do we believe that God has truly promised us all these wonderful things? Are we determined to receive it? Are we willing to, re- to take the kingdom? The battle is ours. Every day we have to face a battle. And we're going to have to endure difficulties. We're going to have to surmount those difficulties. But beloved, I assure you, eternal life is worth it. It's worth the struggles we have to face. It's worth the denial of self. It's worth saying no to everything that is contrary to the will of God. It's worth it. Because the things God has in store for us, no eye hath seen, nor ear hath heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for us. And he wants each and every one of us to have that. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's what he's offering to us today. He's offering to us that gift. He's offering to us that way of escape. Because every one of us have chosen the way of Cain at one point in our life. And he's offering to us today the way of escape. And he's not buttering it up for you. He's telling you plainly, there's going to be battles. There's going to be a struggle. But it's worth it. Because that which God has in store for you is so worth it that when you receive it, you will not even think about all that you had to suffer to get it. Just as a woman in travail, you know, when her hour of deliverance comes and all that pain and suffering, and she may have to labor for hour upon hour upon hour to bring that child into the world. But when that child comes, she forgets it. Immediately the pain is gone for the joy of that child that she now holds in her arms. You see, that's what God is promising us. Don't th- you won't even think about that pain when the gift is given to us, that eternal inheritance. And I assure you today that it is worth it. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, Father, I thank Thee for Thy words of assurance and comfort to us, Thy words of comfort and strength. Father, I know that each and every one of us have struggles, have difficulties that we must face. But I pray that our eyes may rest upon the promise of victory, the promise of eternal life, and of the things that Thou hast in store for us. O Father, I pray, keep our eyes upon these things. Let our mind rest upon Thy promises, the hope that is before us, that we may be strengthened to endure the trials before us, even as our Lord and Savior was strengthened to endure the cross and the death that was before Him. I pray that that same hope that dwelled in His heart, that flamed His heart and gave Him strength and courage, may abide with us. And Father, I thank Thee for hearing and answering our prayer. And we pray all of these things in the precious name of Thy Son, Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. May the Lord make His face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. And may the Lord lift up His countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth Pioneer Health and Missions